Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, an Old Testament survey from Abraham to modern Israel. The purpose of this Old Testament survey that we're, we've embarked upon is as a means to connect over 10 years worth of dots as we made our way from creation to the end of the Old Testament with Ezra and Nehemiah and of course with the return of the Jews from their Babylonian exile now we began our survey of the Old Testament last week with the father of the Hebrew people people Abraham and this is because except for the first 10 chapters of Genesis, the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis through Revelation, tells us about God and about the kingdom of God through the history of the Hebrews. Now last week, we followed Abraham from the time when the Lord convinced him to leave his family and his homeland, which was up in Mesopotamia, to travel to a new and unnamed place that God would establish as a land set apart for Abraham's descendants. God established a covenant between he and Abraham that promised him a new homeland and that his descendants would be a countless multitude. However, Abraham was already a fairly elderly man and his equally elderly wife had always been barren. So Abraham had no children to carry on his bloodlines, let alone to provide a catalyst for the millions of descendants inherent to the promises contained in that covenant with God. So being aware of this dual dilemma, Sarah offered to give Abraham, her maidservant, to provide him a son. And that's what happened. Ishmael was born, Abraham was thrilled. However, sometime later, God told Abraham that this wouldn't do. Rather, the son of Abraham who would carry on this covenant promise would come from his legal wife, Sarah. And sure enough, Sarah became pregnant and produced a boy child, Isaac. But now Sarah wasn't happy that her son was second fiddle to her maid servant Hagar's son Ishmael, so she demanded that Abraham banish them, and he complied. And in the midst of all this, the Lord told Abraham that Isaac was to be considered as Abraham's firstborn son, so Ishmael was to be sent away. Abraham was devastated by this demand. However, the Lord said he would assure that Ishmael would prosper. He he himself would produce a myriad of descendants and Ishmael went on to become the father of the Arab races as we know them today. Now our lesson came to a close last week when we found that Abraham's son Isaac was now grown 30 or so years of age, was provided with a, a wife, Rebecca, because the production of children is at the center of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, Rivka, his wife, 
was actually a member of Abraham's extended family back up in Mesopotamia. Immediately after she was brought to Canaan by Abraham's faithful servant, she and Isaac were wed. Shortly thereafter, the first Hebrew, Abraham, died and he was buried next to his wife Sarah in a burial cave in the area of Heshbon. Uh, not Heshbon, rather, uh, Hebron. Now, um, before we proceed with our survey, a discussion of the many names of God is appropriate because in the Bible we encounter a variety. Now it's valuable for every Bible and and, and history student to grasp, first and foremost, that the Israelite culture sprang from Mesopotamian roots, the same roots Abraham was born into. It would in no way be incorrect to characterize Noah, the second Adam, who repopulated the world and his family as the first Mesopotamians after the flood, of course. Now, Mesopotamian culture, or better, the many Mesopotamian cultures, was, as were all other ancient civilizations ever scientifically scrutinized, based on a worship of multiple gods. And in the first few generations following Noah, Noah, mankind again perverted his relationship with God and quickly abandoned the truth that Noah taught. There is only one God. And as I pointed out earlier, this can be traced to Nimrod, the builder of the infamous Tower of Babel, as the person who was responsible for bringing together these various notions of of paganism that had grown into fallen man's mind and establishing a religion. Nimrod, the black-skinned son of Cush, we now call this nationality Ethiopian, was a grandson of Ham. And recall that it was Ham who had disgraced his father Noah, and it was Noah's curse upon Ham that destined uh, him to produce descendants who would war against the descendants of Noah's other two sons, Shem and Japheth. Nimrod gathered his subjects together. He built a tower to reach up to his distorted view of heaven and he declared war against God. And the result of Nimrod's religion was the notion of a spiritual universe that contained many gods arranged in a hierarchy with one that was above all the other gods. And the title the Mesopotamians gave this highest god was El. This was not monotheism. Rather, it was was a god, a particular one, the El, that was preeminent over all the other ones. Now, as various clans that had once emanated from Noah spread out and, and grew into tribes and nations and people groups throughout Mesopotamia and the Middle East and North Africa and beyond they took with them a fairly common grouping of gods. And although the names of these gods and the exact hierarchy would incorporate minor differences from culture to culture and language to language, they all 
represented the same basic mystery Babylon system that was developed by Nimrod and advanced by his wife Semiramis after his death. Well, the Canaanite gods that Abraham and later the Israelites encountered in the land of Canaan were simply a continuation and a variation of the Nimrod Mesopotamian gods. How is that? Because the founder of the land of Canaan, Noah's grandson Canaan, was himself born a Mesopotamian. He was raised in that system, so he took it with him when he migrated. Now when God sent Avraham into the land of Canaan, he would not have found the Canaanite religious structure foreign to him. He would have been well familiar with it. See, it must be remembered that Avraham's father was a merchant of idols. That is, he was a maker and a seller of carved figurines representing all the various gods of these Mesopotamian cultures. And when Avraham ratified God's covenant with him and he became that first Hebrew, Abraham's clan and offspring didn't instantly swear off all the gods of old in exchange for the one true God of the universe. Almighty God would have simply become another God in the hierarchy of gods, even if he now was their El, the highest God above all the other gods. In fact, we get constant reminders in the Bible that the Hebrews forever struggled with idolatry. Forever. That is the worship of these other gods, these other Baals from their past. I mean, let's not make the mistake of thinking that they discarded one for the other. Rather, they accepted some hybrid mixture of God Almighty with all these lesser, other lesser gods. And if you'll keep this in mind when reading the Old Testament, you're going to have a much more complete context for understanding the thought processes of the Hebrews in, in, in those days. Well, from among the scores of examples of Hebrews worshipping other gods can be found familiar biblical stories, such as Rachel stealing her father's household deities when her husband Jacob fled from Laban. Of a brazen serpent being worshipped in the holy in the holy temple of Jerusalem prior to 700 BC. Of Solomon who built the temple and yet he allowed his hundreds of foreign wives and concubines to worship the pagan gods from whatever nation they came from. And even more, Solomon permitted altars of sacrifice to these gods to be built right next to the Israelite holy sites, including the Mount of Olives, and he actually participated in some of these cult practices. For this he was constantly criticized by the tribal elders and and the prophets. Nearly all the kings and monarchs that followed Solomon did the same thing. And well before Solomon, when Moses was leading the Israelites out of Egypt, how can we forget the infamous golden calf incident as a prime example of a people who worshipped the God of Israel, but instinctively they held on to and sought other gods as the occasion might arise. The golden calf that the Israelites rebelliously constructed at Mount Sinai was simply a high Egyptian deity called the Apis Bull, which they were so familiar with 
as a result of their long captivity in Egypt. Now throughout the Bible, we have prophets, we have writers of the Holy Scriptures finding cause for anger and complaint against the Hebrews for their idolatry. For their insistence on accepting the existence of scores of false gods in addition to the Lord God Almighty. This is proof in and of itself of the prevalence of multiple God worship by the Israelites even at the same time they were pledging their allegiance to Yahweh, Jehovah, Yehovah, El, God Almighty. So let's not be too harsh in our judgment upon them. The Hebrews represented the first organized monotheistic religion, but that in itself was a very radical notion. The very concept of one God and only one God ran against the grain of all human beings' natures. The Bible indicates that God's personal name is formed from the Hebrew letters yud Hey vav Hey. It's critical to grasp that most other words for God were up to then not names. They were fairly impersonal titles or they were characteristics of God. Now an interesting transformation did happen that we need to pay attention to. And as we saw this transformation happen in our walk through the Bible, it tends to it tends to get a little bit confusing. The Canaanite word El took on a double meaning. Not only did it indicate the highest God of the pantheon of gods, it was now considered the formal name of the highest God. In other words, it's not unlike in our culture where we can discuss the spiritual realm and speak of a God, as in a generic God or a one God among many, little g God, but at the same time refer to the Judeo-Christian God as God, big G God, making this God's formal name to be God. We see this same concept reflected in several places in the early scriptures, such as when Jacob named a particular place El Betel. Now here we see this peculiarity where the word El is repeated. El Betel. That's because El is being used as both a proper name and a simple noun. So while a literal translation would be God, house of God, its proper meaning is house of the God El. And later on in the Bible, El would drop its Canaanite origins and become the exclusively Hebrew Yudhevavheh. The theologians refer to these four letters representing God's name as the Tetragrammaton. Now, of course, YHWH or YHVH, as we usually see it written, are English alphabet characters which come from a fairly modern 
alphabet. In ancient Hebrew, these letters, as originally written by the finger of God on, on, on stone slabs, were the Hebrew characters yud Hey, vav Hey, or in another Hebrew dialect, yud Hey, wal Hey. And since whatever expressed in English or Hebrew, whether expressed in English or Hebrew, these letters, characters are all consonants. We've had to speculate at the vowel sounds in order that we can make it a spoken word. The commonly held pronunciation is Yahweh or Yahweh, and this was later Englishized into the word Jehovah that we is commonly used in Christendom. Now, a long time later, about 500 BC, following the Babylonian exile of the Jewish people, now Babylon, by the way, was back up in Mesopotamia, we find that the Jews began using the title Elohim whenever referring to God, or whenever those four letters, yud Hey vav Hey, were encountered in the scriptures. It's believed that Elohim was used because it was a commonly used word throughout the Middle East simply meaning God or the God. Likely it was borrowed from the Babylonian culture that the Jews were exiled into. Now remember, El was a native Mesopotamian word. Now it's interesting that in reality the term Elohim is plural. So in modern English we would be correct in translating Elohim to gods, plural. However, we would miss the point because the plural doesn't always mean more than one in Hebrew word structure. It would, as in the case of Elohim, simply indicate preeminence, greatness. And we see many Hebrew titles, not names, titles of God with the prefix El, don't we? El Roi, God sees me. El Shaddai, El Elyon, God Most High, many more. This is unmistakably a result of continuing Mesopotamian influence. Titles of the God of Israel that revolved around the concept of El, the highest God of all the gods, would certainly have been much more understandable to the world at large at that time than the actual name of God, the exclusively Hebrew and nearly unpronounceable yud Well, by the time of Alexander the Great, as the Greco-Roman era dawned, this would have been around 300 BC, we find a taboo developing among the Jews against speaking the name of God, Yahweh, Yehoveh, about saying that word out loud. And this taboo exists to this day among the most religious Jews. It was probably a protective reaction due to the mystical theater of the Greek gods suddenly being introduced into Jewish culture, challenging the established influence of the ancient and familiar pantheon of the Mesopotamian gods. Therefore, from around oh, 3rd and 4th century BC on, we begin to see the usage of a new word for the God of Israel, Adonai. But as always, Adonai is not a name. It's a title. 
Often it is mistakenly taught that Adonai is a Greek word, since it appeared in the Greco-Roman era. That's not so. Adonai is a Hebrew word, and its root word is Adon, which means Lord or Master. The suffix of AI at the end of it makes the word plural. However, unlike Elohim, which although it's technically a plural form, actually is used to denote greatness, the AI at the end of Adonai is indeed plural and it means more than one. This is not multiple God worship, but it introduces the concept that although there is one but one God, he manifests himself in more than one form. This is borne out in the writings of the rabbis in the Mishnah. And this concept found its way, no doubt, into the Christian concept of the Trinity. So from around 300 BC forward, whenever Jews wanted to refer to God, they would use various terms, including Elohim, meaning God, or they would use the term Hashem, the name, or they used the term Adonai, meaning my Lord, my Master, a few other variations. Now they would do this even when they were reading scripture and they encountered the Hebrew letters yud heh vav So they ceased saying God's formal name and exactly how to pronounce it was lost. The early Gentile church fathers, did, of course, didn't share this taboo with the Jews about avoiding saying or even writing God's formal name and in their desire to distance themselves from Judaism they began to once again use God's actual name Yahweh, Yahweh, Yehoveh now Yehoveh which is how I think it was probably pronounced was later Englishized into the word Jehovah that is commonly used today in the church when referring to God's name. Jehovah became predominant in the church and the usage of other and older names and titles all but disappeared for a while. Now starting in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, closer to our time, the ancient Hebrew terms such as Adonai, Elohim, Hashem, Yahweh, Yehovah began to find their way back into the writings of Christian theologians. And the reason for this is twofold. First, because each of these Hebrew terms has subtle but different meanings. Our current better understanding of Hebrew and Greek texts allows us to use the word that more precisely fits with the context. And second, there's been a recognition that our early church fathers intentionally fostered an anti-Semitic attitude by substituting Greek, Latin, and English words and phrases for the more straightforward and well-understood Hebrew originals. Well, after this long explanation now about the evolving use of God's name, here's the important bottom line we should understand. More, way more, than 90% of the time that we encounter one of the titles of God in our Holy Scriptures, in our Bibles. Lord, God, whatever. The original Hebrew word in the Bible, in the original Hebrew Scriptures is yud heh vav heh 
God's formal name. That's what you'll find. Let me say that in a different way. More than nine out of ten times that our English Bibles use the word Lord or God, the original Hebrew is Yahweh. God's actual formal name, Yudhe is used over 6,000 times in the original Hebrew of the Old Testament. But our modern English translations reduce the use to just a handful of times. Especially because in Christianity, the word Lord has become virtually synonymous with the word Christ when we read the Old Testament too often when we run across the word Lord we assume that it's referring to Jesus but what we find when we look at the original Hebrew was that the Father's name Yudhei is actually what's written there and it really changes the dynamic and the meaning of it doesn't it? when we see the Father's name written there we know who it's referring to Well, let's move on now with the progress of the Hebrew people in the form of Abraham's son, Isaac. The Bible doesn't tell us too much about Isaac. He wanders around some, um, but not nearly to the extent of his father Abraham. His wandering is not as an aimless person. Rather, it was that he was an owner of flocks and herds. And so he needed fresh pasture on a pretty regular basis. He appears to have done well for himself. He inherited his father's wealth. God appears to Isaac, Isaac, as he did to his father. He gives him the same promise about fathering many nations. He alleviates any doubt that Isaac would be the one who carries on the line of covenant promise. His wife... Rivka, Rebecca, gives him twin sons, Esau and Yaakov. Esau and Jacob. Esau, being the first one out of the birth canal, was the rightful heir to his father's wealth and authority. But years later, in what the Bible describes as a casual and an impulsive transaction, Esau sells his birthright to his twin brother Jacob for the princely sum of a bowl of lentil soup. Actually, selling a birthright at that time was a somewhat common practice. Well, we fast forward. Isaac, Isaac, now about 135 years old and blind and knowing that his death is near, decides it's time to give the customary blessing to the firstborn of his twin boys. And who's that firstborn? Esau. Although they were twins, Esau exited the birth canal first. The effect of this blessing is to validate that son's right to the family's wealth and to inherit the father's authority. Isaac, Isaac, is unaware of Esau's dumb deal in selling his firstborn rights to his brother Jacob. And Esau intends to keep it that way. Well, when Isaac instructs Esau to go out hunting and bring back some fresh meat for this blessing, his brother, Jacob, 
and his mother, Rivka, devise a cunning plan. The name Jacob turns out to be prophetic because in Hebrew it means heel catcher. The Bible tells us that when Esau was born, Jacob was what? Hanging onto the heel of his twin brother. However, heel catcher is probably not taken, meant to be taken literally. It is thought by most scholars to be an ancient Hebrew idiom that means deceiver. Anyway, before Esau can return from the hunt, Jacob disguises himself as Esau. He goes into Isaac's tent and he dupes this nearly blind old Esau, his father, into giving Jacob the firstborn blessing. Isaac thinks it's Esau he's blessing. Esau returns from the hunt. He finds out what's transpired and he is devastated. And he pleads with his father to change the the blessing. I mean, but such a blessing by tradition is irreversible for any reason. Rivka, mom, she knows her sons well. And she fears that Isaac's imminent death is going to be the prelude of Esau killing his brother Jacob for his treachery. And upon their mother's urging, Jacob flees to his uncle Lavan, Laban, far away back up in Haran of Mesopotamia. Well, in Haran, Jacob meets Rachel. This is one of Lavan's daughters at the family well. Lavan is Jacob's uncle, his mother's brother. It's love at first sight. Now, as a fugitive with nothing else to offer, Yaakov agrees to seven years of bond servitude to Levon and return for the right to marry his daughter Rachel. Well, these seven years pass and in a sure sign, at least to Jacob, that what goes around comes around, during the marriage ceremony, Leah, Levon's oldest daughter, is secretly switched out for Rachel. And by the time Jacob finds out, it's too late. Leah is now his legal wife. So, in a promise for another seven years of bond servitude, Levon also gives Rachel to Jacob. Now make no mistake, Jacob was not an eager, foolish young man when he first married Leah, then Rachel. He was 84 years old. So the giving up of 14 years of his life for Rachel, that had to be pretty well thought out. Not only had Jacob received more than he originally bargained for, but his now two wives, they were sisters. This doesn't usually work out well. They constantly quarreled for the next several years, which coincides with a growing hostility between Jacob and his father-in-law, Levon. Well, after completing 20 years, 20 years of servitude to Laban, 14 for Rachel and Leah, plus six more in exchange for some livestock, Jacob, knowing something bad's going to happen, gathers his family and they flee. Well, as they prepare to secretly depart, Rachel steals her father's household gods. And she takes them with her 
on their journey. Well, taking his daughters and his grandchildren, that's one thing. Uh, taking his family gods, that's a whole nother deal. So, Levon forms a posse and he pursues and he catches up to Jacob and his family. Now, Rachel is a clever and determined girl. So even after a thorough search of their campsite, Levon can't find his missing gods. And the issue of the gods is very important to Laban because in that era, the person who possessed the family gods could claim legal inheritance to all the family authority and wealth. Possessing her father's gods was Rachel's ticket to everything her father owned when he passed on. Levon's sons would not have been happy about this deal either. Jacob survives this ordeal by agreeing to Levon's demands that he take no other wives. Jacob now moves on. He returns to Canaan to face his brother Esau. And he's not really expecting to survive this family reunion. I've been to a couple of those. Now, nearing his destination, Jacob has this odd encounter with what some Bibles describe as an angel's, others say it's the Lord, and he finds himself in an all-night wrestling match. And whatever the meaning is of this encounter, it produced a changed heart, a changed heart in Jacob, not to mention a permanent disability. But something else gets changed as well, something monumental. Yaakov is told by God he has a new name. And that name is Israel. Israel. It's at this point in history, not before, that an identifiable people was created that God could call his own. The Israelites. By the way, sometimes in your Bibles you'll find the same people group called the Jacobites. Now while Jacob, called Israel now, his offspring... Their descendants could rightfully be called Israelites. Only some of them will eventually be called Jews. Now, I'll expound on that confusing matter in due time. So expecting the worst, Jacob, from here on alternately called Israel and Jacob, the terms are flip-flopped throughout the rest of the Bible, he finally encounters his twin brother Esau, who it turns out has also changed. And tears flow. And in Israel, Jacob offers gifts of reconciliation to his brother Esau. Esau, now a wealthy man, refuses, but Israel insists, and now they part in peace. Israel heads, heads for Shechem, which is a walled city-state in, in Canaan. This is the same place where God told Avraham this would be the land that he would give to him and his descendants. But in Abraham's time, Shechem was just a, a very small little settlement. Israel purchased land for his clan from the king of Shechem, intent to settle down permanently. You see, being near a city, small village even, brings mutual security, but in this case it was a walled city. And this was formalized into a pact resembling a treaty. 
And part of any agreement of this type is that the residents of the city and the members of the people who wish to live outside the city become allies and they join each other when it's time to fend off marauders. But things go south. Quickly they sour. When the king of Shechem's son rapes Israel's only named daughter, Dinah, Dinah, and by the way, probably he had other daughters as well, and her incensed brothers lead a raid of revenge, leaving many of the city dwellers dead in the wake. Now Israel is heartbroken over this murderous actions of his sons upon these innocent people of Shechem. He knows they can't stay. So they pack up now and they head to Bethel. God appears to Israel with assurance that the covenants given to Abraham, then Isaac, now to himself, remain intact. His beloved wife Rachel, for whom he gave 14 years of servitude to Mary, dies, giving birth to Israel's 12th and last son, Benjamin. Benjamin. It's now about 1800 B.C. Well, back up in their original homeland, Mesopotamia, the Babylonian culture has arisen and it's becoming more powerful, more sophisticated. It's led by this continuing domination of the Amorite tribe. Using the pyramid-like towers they built, called ziggurats, they begin charting the skies. They become expert astronomers. Down in Egypt, way to the south, the traditional Egyptian culture that has produced such an advanced civilization with its enormous pyramids, libraries, agriculture, science, all under a very strong central rule, it's disintegrating. <clears throat> foreigners now sit in the seat of Pharaoh in Egypt. Not just any foreigners. Bedouin sheikhs. Semites. These Bedouins were not mindless barbarians. They easily adopted Egyptian ways, even adopted Egyptian names, but they were by nature tribal, they were wanderers, and they didn't understand how to establish and maintain a large central government. Their rule was considered almost unbearable by the native Egyptians. Therefore, these so-called Hyksos, Rulers were never able to unite Egypt the way the pharaohs before them did. And so Egypt declined severely for about 150 years. Well, just a few years after Benjamin, Benjamin was born, 17-year-old Yosef, Joseph, Israel's openly favored son, fell victim to a vicious plot by his ten jealous and angry older brothers. He was thrown into an empty water cistern, sold to a passing caravan of Arab slave traders. Joseph was then announced to his father as having been killed by a wild animal. Israel was devastated. He blamed his other sons for this, obviously unaware of the truth. He would grieve for years to come. The caravan winds up in Egypt. There, Joseph is sold as a house slave to Potiphar, chief steward to the Pharaoh. Joseph 
young, good-looking, highly intelligent, he greatly impresses his master. Nonetheless, he finds himself imprisoned as a result of false charges against him by Potiphar's wife. And while Joseph languishes in prison, the Pharaoh starts having these recurring nightmares. And the local Egyptian wizards were unable to decipher these dreams. So, Joseph was called in to try. Pharaoh was so impressed by Joseph's accuracy that he promoted him to second in command of all Egypt. Potiphar now worked for Joseph. Joseph, now 30 years old, has not seen his family in 13 years. Well, meantime, back up in Canaan, where Jacob and his clan still reside, things are not good. Another famine had taken hold of the land. And Israel's tribe was in danger of not surviving. Now, news arrives that down in Egypt, they had through a debt management of some foreigner, who turns out is Joseph, somehow foreseen this famine and they had stockpiled much grain. Reluctantly, Israel sends his sons to Egypt to try and purchase some of this grain. Now, part of the reluctance was due to not wanting to lose another child. I mean, Israel had never recovered from the loss of his precious Joseph. This fear undoubtedly came from the common knowledge that the poorest of Egyptian society, unable to purchase grain, they didn't have any money, they were selling themselves into bond servitude to Pharaoh's government in return for food for their families. This foreign Pharaoh of a divided country was using the famine and using Joseph's abilities to construct a slave labor force to satisfy his ambitions. But God used this situation to enable Israel to survive. Well, when Joseph finds out it's his brothers who have come asking to buy grain, he's crushed when they don't even recognize him. Hurt and angry, he toys with them for a little while. But knowing that any revenge he might extract would just serve to further hurt his aged father, Joseph not only gives them grain, he sends word to his father Israel, Jacob, that all his family should come to Egypt where Joseph, from his position of power, can assure their survival. Well, Israel comes, the entire clan, which now numbers 70 individuals, not counting Joseph. In fact, there were many more than just those 70, but that's a discussion for another time. Israel dies there a few years later. But before he dies, he pronounces a blessing. He pronounces a blessing upon Joseph's two male children, Ephraim and Manasseh, born by Joseph's Egyptian wife. This act will have an enormous impact on the future. This deathbed blessing, this cross-handed blessing, put Joseph's younger child Ephraim ahead of the older child, Manasseh, for purposes of inheritance. But the blessing also included the adoption of these two boys, these two grandchildren of Israel's. They were no longer his grandchildren. They were now his children. 
This blessing had both immediate and prophetic effects. Because by adopting these children, they were no longer Egyptian. They became Israelites. I want to pause here and we're going to take a look next time at this much overlooked section of the Bible. Next time we're going to carefully look at one of the most important events in Holy Scripture, Jacob's cross-handed blessing.